using the energy systems that we created a century ago that really built this incredible lifestyle that we have in the developed world. Nobody is willing to give that up and, and not, nobody will give it up. But we're going to be changing our form of energy. When I was in graduate school, I often talk about this, the computer I used was the, you know, the size of a container on a containerized vessel, and it was huge. And it had less computing power than my iPhone has. Why won't we see uh, solar cells with nanotechnology shrunk to a hundredth of their current size and built into windows so you can have them in apartments here in Manhattan? And why can't that battery, which is now the size of your wall, be the size of your laptop? There's almost no question that that's going to happen. And these twenty and thirty thousand dollar investments will become hundred dollar investments. The mainframe I used in graduate school cost uh, the State University of New York millions of dollars, and the price of, com of that computer today is a hundred dollars. <laughs> so we're seeing that kind of technological innovation applied to energy in intense ways, and we don't really know the result of it, but it's not too hard to figure out what people are trying to, to do. And that will be the transformative technology that's going to make sustainability uh, feasible uh, all over the world. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities, where we discuss ways to create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today as our guest, we are honored to have with us Columbia University professor and author, Dr. Steve Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a professor in public affairs, director of the Master's of Public Administration Program in Environmental Science and Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, and the director of the Master's of Science in Sustainability Management at Columbia University's School of Professional Studies. He is the author of several books, most recently in The Sustainable City, and is a regular contributor for the Huffington Post on sustainability management and environmental policy. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. In your book, you talk about the importance cities play as the center of industry and life for most people. As cities continue to grow, what are the key elements to ensure that they grow in a sustainable manner? I think that the most important element of sustainability is that we think about the impact of our activities and of our infrastructure on the surrounding environment and that we pay attention to it. I think that this is starting to happen. I think people are thinking about it. I think that we've had a period of time here over the last 50 years uh, when the environmental movement uh, first started uh, in the United States uh, in earnest in the late 1960s, where we have separated the growth of our economy from the growth of pollution by applying technology to uh, the sources of pollution, whether it's power plants or motor vehicles or sewage or whatever. And I think that we have to continue to do that. The way I look at the evolution of cities, I mean, I'm here in New York City, and we had, this city started, originally it was a farming community, then it became a trading community, then it became a manufacturing center. Without quite realizing what was happening, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, we practically went broke, but we transitioned to a post-industrial city based on services. 
And now we are in the process of being transformed into a sustainable post-industrial city. So one of the key elements you talk about in your book and, and a key element of industry is, of course, how we power that industry. And that goes for the buildings we live in, as well as businesses. It's critical for our, our prosperity and our, our well-being, but also impacts the natural resources and the environment we depend on. Can you discuss the progress you're seeing in that sector in particular? Yeah, Well, we are at the beginning of a transition off of fossil fuels to renewable energy. In some parts of the world, it's happening faster than in others. In California, it's happening quite rapidly. In Germany, it's happening fast. And in New York State, it's happening at a reasonable rate. I think nationally, it varies from place to place. I mean, there's a lot of wind energy in Texas and in parts of the Midwest. And I think what's happening is the technology of renewable energy solar, wind in particular, and storage is improving dramatically. It's not quite at the point yet where it's completely displacing fossil fuels, but it's coming. Uh, You can look at the cost curves, you can look at the development of the technology, and it's really just a matter of how long will it take. Now, if we'd had a government in Washington, we would probably do it much faster, but even without a government in Washington, it's happening and it will continue to happen. But that's the key. The key is getting off of fossil fuels for a wide variety of reasons. One of the trends in the energy space we're seeing in California that is causing a a fair amount of disruption, but also uh, has a lot of opportunities associated with it, is community choice energy, where cities are procuring their own energy instead of the major investor-owned utilities to have more local control over things like renewable energy, but they're still using the the transmission lines of the utilities. And so I'm wondering what you think about those sorts of trends where now we're seeing a significant portion of residents in California that are getting their energy from community choice aggregators or community choice energy now, and what that means for the shift from major infrastructure investments and long-term contracts that some of these utilities have been in? Yeah, I I think we are at the verge of a a series of disruptions. And I think, uh, again, you have this kind of crazy group in Washington that thinks that the grid is going to be disrupted by renewable energy and it's a threat to national security. The grid is going to be challenged under new technology, but we still need it particularly for a variety of heavy industries and for backup. And so it's not going to go away, but its business model is changing and it's going to change even more over the next 20 or 30 years. You're going to see microgrids, you're going to see more decentralized generation. I mean, the way, what I would compare this to is in class about 10, 15 years ago, I used to ask my students, how many of you had landlines and how many of you had uh, cell phones? About five years ago, I stopped asking the question because nobody has a landline. Nobody under 30 has a landline, I should say. And uh, that technology, it's not that we don't use landlines. We use them in business, but they are, it is gradually becoming a technology that's not used. Cable television is having some of the same kind of disruption. So electricity is going to have it also. And again, it's just a question of, of when. We're using the energy systems that we created a century ago that really built this incredible lifestyle that we have in the developed world. Nobody is willing to give that up and and nobody will give it up. But we're going to be changing our form of energy. When I was in graduate school, I often talk about this, the computer I used 
was the size of a container on a containerized vessel. I mean, it was huge. And it had less computing power than my iPhone has. Why won't we see uh, solar cells with nanotechnology shrunk to a hundredth of their current size and built into windows so you can have them in apartments here in Manhattan? And why can't that battery, which is now the size of your wall, be the size of your laptop? There's almost no question that that's going to happen and that these twenty dollars and $30,000 investments will become $100 investments. The mainframe I used in graduate school cost uh, the State University of New York millions of dollars. And the price of, com- of that computer today is $100. <laughs> so we're seeing that kind of technological innovation applied to energy in intense ways. And we don't really know the result of it but it's not too hard to figure out what people are trying to to do. And that will be the transformative technology that's going to make sustainability uh, feasible uh, all over the world. One of the things that that really stood out to me about your book was the idea that when we talk about a sustainable city, it really has to be about a more vibrant and prosperous lifestyle. It can't be about um, sacrifice or even an altruism. And with this sort of flattening of the world, with how connected we are through the technology you mentioned, it's important that we understand that there are countries all over the world, developing countries all over the world that want access to the the type of lifestyle that we have here in the United States. And so I thought some of your examples particularly about microgrids and, and renewable energy that can be transported to actually bring power to rural villages in Africa was one of the examples. It's actually not about sacrificing, but it's also improving quality of life in places that if we were to be able to allow for or uh, make possible power in rural areas all over the United States and all over the world, you can think about the impact that would have on our natural resources, but we can actually leapfrog some of that and go towards cleaner sources while allowing more opportunities for more people. Right. I think that we used industrial technology to get uh, where we are today uh, with iron and coal, and we had a, a very different style of manufacturing much more labor-intensive. When you built a car, when when Henry Ford built the Model T, everything to make the car had to be assembled in Michigan near the car. And Ford, at its peak, was the most incredible vertically integrated organization you've seen. They owned iron mines and coal mines. They made steel. They owned rubber plantations. They made their own tires. They had their own ad agencies. They did everything it took to make a car. But then what happened over time is as the system matured, they found, you know, they could buy steel cheaper from a steel company because somebody specialized in making steel. And we see the specialization of economic life now so that if you buy a car today, you know, I have a car that's a Honda. It was made in Kentucky with parts from 75 different countries. Is that an American car? Is it a Japanese car? Who knows? And The idea that sustainability means we're going to have to sit alone in the corner with a candle is ridiculous. But part of what's happening, and this is what I think is both exciting, but is also going to require uh, some transitions that we don't fully understand. People are moving from the countryside into cities. And one of the things that's driving them is that agriculture has become automated and also the images of city life. But then they get to the people from the farmland get to the city 
and the factories are becoming automated. So what are they going to do? Well, we're evolving toward a more educated brain-based economy where more and more of the work that we do involves creativity and thinking and analytics and a whole variety of things that we didn't even understand 30 or 40 years ago. That's where the employment is going. The issue is how do we create this higher standard of living without at the same time creating so much garbage and waste that we're choking in it? So we have to build systems so that we can close the loop on our economy. And what makes that possible is renewable energy. If you can build seat cushions using photosynthesis instead of oil and rare earth metals, then I think you can see the kind of economy that could develop. And I think we're at the beginning of that right now. The other point you make about how we can have potentially an even higher quality of life without consuming more is the shift in the connection between our minds and physical objects and between quality of life and material possessions. So we're moving away from consuming in the same way where now travel is more important, experience is more important than owning objects. I'm wondering if you can speak a little to what you're seeing in that space and and how that aligns with the idea of a sustainable city? Well, you're seeing the beginning of of what people are calling the sharing economy and people feeling, you know, when I was a teenager, I owned a car and I wanted to show it off to my friends. Now, that was a long time ago and everywhere I drove, there wasn't a traffic jam. I mean, now there are many, many more cars and young people are less interested in driving to show off their cars to their friends, but they are interested in getting from one place to the next. So ride sharing or biking or mass transit, when it's effective, has, is more important in, in those kinds of situations. There's a company here in New York called Rent the Runway. So Rent the Runway, and the head of sustainability is one of my graduates, and we did a panel discussion on with Rent the Runway, a company called Tenter, which is sort of Airbnb for camping. And I think we had Uber there as well. And The idea of Rent the Runway is you have a big party you're going to go to. You can spend $800 on a fancy gown, or you can rent it from Rent the Runway for $50. And when you're done with it, you put it back in the bag and they dry clean it for somebody else to use. In fact, they also have a service where for $150 a month, you get four or five outfits a week and you dress for professional reasons with them. And then you send them back at the end of the week. Uh, and your closet has uh, very few items in it that you own. So these ideas of bike sharing, car sharing, home sharing, that's one piece of it. The other piece is that we are developing some technologies that allow you to consume without consuming material resources. And the best example of that is probably uh, streaming video. Or streaming music. So you used to go to Blockbuster, get your video or eventually your DVD, and it had been shipped there. It had been manufactured. It had been packaged. Now you turn on Netflix or Amazon or whatever you've got, and electrons come to your computer. One of those things requires a lot of material, and one doesn't. The consumption's the same. In fact, if anything, the Netflix model is more convenient. You don't have to go to the store. So we are seeing more of that kind of consumption, people playing games, people going to parks, social interaction, cafes, bars, entertainment. 
In New York City, uh, where we used to have all the clothing manufacturers, we now have art galleries. And you go there on a weeknight or a weekend night, and there's thousands of young people uh, going from gallery to gallery, sipping cheap wine and looking at paintings they don't understand. And But they're hanging out. That's what that's about. So it's a dynamic and exciting lifestyle that people gravitate toward. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of promise in, in the new technology and in the shift towards more of a, an experiential society rather than ownership or, or consumptive in the same way we've thought about it in the past. Also work with a number of local governments who are struggling with the promise of the sustainability behind some of these services, in particular Uber and Lyfts and, and services like Airbnb and the reality. And I think there are ways to optimize the sustainability of it, but I think in many ways the jury's still out on, on whether we are seeing that now. And I think about just taking Uber or Lyft as an example, what we've seen so far is from the few studies that have come out is an increase in VMT. And I think Uberpool and Liftline and some of the services to maximize the number of people in each vehicle could be really promising. And I know that's the direction they're hoping to go. But what would you say to cities and counties and other leaders who are trying to manage this new innovation from a, a public sector that tends to be more risk adverse? How do you work with the private sector to ensure that we see the promises and the hope that is there. Well, the first thing is the idea that capitalism should go unfettered and not be regulated is absurd. We've always had a mixed economy in America. There's always been a government role. And Lyft and, and Uber and Airbnb should be regulated the same way we regulate taxi cabs and, uh, and hotels. So we, these are new forms of commerce. And so we haven't figured out how to do it yet, but we're going to have to. There's very little question about that. I mean, one of the impacts, though, that they're not studying of these things is it's there's an absolute reduction in young people owning automobiles. And one of the reasons they can do that is they know they can pick up their smartphone if they need to get a ride and they can get someplace where before, if they didn't have their car with them, they weren't confident of that. So that's one of the impacts that we need to be thinking about. The other issue is, do you have mass transit? Is the mass transit comfortable? This country, unfortunately, developed uh, with a lot of personal transportation and without adequate mass transit. Now, as people, as towns are repopulating and we're getting a little bit of concentration of population, then the issue is, can we create mass transit options for people that people will use? Now, I live in a city that I own a car, but my car spends uh, between Labor Day and Memorial Day in the garage. The only time I use it is in the summer to go to my beach home. The rest of the time I walk, I take the subway, and I take uh, car services, taxis, and so on. But I live in a city that has 24-hour mass transit now. It needs reinvestment. It needs a lot. But we have to figure out ways of both regulating and generating revenues from these new forms of commerce to create equity and to help people. I mean, you know, one of the issues with yellow cabs here in New York over the last 20 years is it used to be that a cab driver could make a middle-class income. What happened here is because of problems with regulation, the medallions became very expensive, fleets got in, and owners would run these cabs 24 hours a day, and cab drivers would lease the cars from the cab companies and barely make, making a living. 
a lot of the Uber and Lyft drivers uh, are struggling. So it's clear that some of these services need to cost more to be viable, and there needs to be some taxation on them to support particularly mass transit options. But I think we're at the beginning of that, and I believe those things will happen. We just have to fight this ideology, which seems to think that government has no role in our political economy. You know, I don't know if people realize this, but if it wasn't for government, most rural America wouldn't have electricity. That was all done by the government. (laughs) And Southern California and Nevada and Arizona wouldn't exist because all the water was built by the federal government. So I think we're in a, a bit of a silly season ideologically. But to get to sustainability, we need the public policies and we need government to play a, a strong role. And it may require rethinking how we measure sustainability and how we classify things like transit. So is transit just bus and light rail or could it be microtransit? Could it be an Uber pool or Lyft line type service? I also think some of our metrics around vehicle miles traveled may need to be reconsidered because if we think about the equity, part of what we're seeing from the decline in transit is, and you alluded to this, is people who now have other options deciding not to take really inconvenient transit lines or unsafe transit lines. So in that sense, to be more equitable about access to mobility, we may need to see an increase in consumption of mobility, but hopefully we see that as an increase in people mile traveled rather than vehicle miles traveled. And I think there are ways to do that, but it does cause us to reconsider how we're, we're thinking about sustainability. Well, also, if the vehicles are electric cars powered by renewable energy, that's a little bit different than the system we have today. But the mass transit system in New York City was all designed to bring people from the outer boroughs into Manhattan and out at the end of the day. And so if you want to go from Brooklyn to Queen by subway, you have to go through Manhattan. So in fact, an Uber or a Lyft is the fastest and in some respects most cost-effective way of getting from parts of Brooklyn to parts of Queens. So there are places even where you have good mass transit where the transit system predates the current forms of development. What's interesting to me, though, is that People come to cities because they want to interact with other people. That's what cities are about. And transportation is really important. You have to be mobile. Mass transit, when you have the kind of density we have here in New York, is essential. I can get from Columbia University, where I'm sitting right now, to Greenwich Village in 25 minutes on the subway. If I drove there or took a cab, it would be 45 minutes. So I have lots of reasons to want to take the subway and If it were a little faster, a little safer, a little more comfortable, I would do it even more often. Great. Well, I think we have to leave it at that. And I think your line in the book is a a great way to end, that we can live more exciting, interesting lives and affect the environment less. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I encourage everyone to check out his book, The Sustainable City. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to connecting with you next time in Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash 
Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.